Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. So nice to see you all this morning. This, of course, is our second of three messages in the book of the prophet Habakkuk. The series title is Trusting God in Uncertain Times. And we mentioned last week, and I'd like to repeat by way of introduction for any who weren't here. I know some of you were not here last week. As we look out, at the world today, at our country, perhaps at our employment situation, our families, our lives, perhaps at no other time in our life has things appeared to be quite as uncertain as they are now. Indeed, we do live, from our perspective, in uncertain times. From God's perspective, however, it is certain Everything he has planned is certain to come to pass. Our view, though, is only a slice of time. He sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He sees it all. He knows what's coming. He's planned what's coming. He is sovereign over what's coming. He has Sovereign just means he has the power to bring to pass what he has planned. In other words, God is in control. Sometimes we look out and it looks like no one's in control. In a moment of honesty, we'll say, we're definitely not in control of our life. Otherwise, things would have turned out very different than they have. But God is in control. This makes these times that we live in not uncertain, but certain. Yet from our perspective, we still need to trust God. What caused the prophet Habakkuk so much, so many troubling thoughts, what troubled his heart so much was he looked out at first at his own people, the Jewish nation. And he saw idolatry. He saw immorality. He saw the rich oppressing the poor. He saw the powerful oppressing the weak. He saw that justice from the courts and the judges was not blind, that it favored the powerful and it favored the rich. And justice was not given to everyone. He saw all this evil, and it troubled him greatly. And he talked to the Lord about it, and when the Lord replied in chapter 1 and told him how he was going to deal with the evil amongst his own people, the prophet couldn't accept it. Because the Lord had told him, here's how I'm going to judge the evil in my people. I am going to raise up a greater evil, the Babylonians, and I will send them to judge my people. When the prophet heard this, he was beside himself. Lord, this doesn't make any sense at all. Maybe you don't know what the Babylonians are like, Lord. How can you do this to your people? The Babylonians are far 
more wicked. Why not judge them instead? He just could not accept the Lord's answer. When we look out in the world, even at our own country, we see evil. We know something is not right. This is not the way it should be. Evil seems to have free hand. When is evil ever going to come to an end? When is God finally going to say, enough, and put an end to it all? In chapter 1, the prophet speaks, God answers, and then the prophet speaks again, and he's going to wait for God's answer. Most of chapter 2, you may have noticed as our brother Gilson read the passage, is God's answer. The title of today's message is Waiting Patiently on God When You Don't Understand His Plan. Remember, last week it was trusting in God when you don't understand His plan. This week it's waiting on God when you don't understand His plan. Sometimes we have to wait. God does things in His time, not our time. In chapter 2, God is revealed as the God who has a plan to judge evil in His time and in His way. Habakkuk thinks God doesn't care about evil. He tries to lecture God about evil and how God should act. And in response to that, in this chapter, the Lord is going to reveal that He is going to judge evil in His time and in His way, all forms of evil. None will escape His judgment. If you take away only one thing from today's message, know this. God wants you to know that He will judge evil in all its forms. He will judge all the evil out there in the world, but He's going to judge the evil in here as well. He's going to do it all at the same time. We want Him to deal with all the evil out there in the world, but we hope that He doesn't touch the evil that's in here. No, no evil is going to escape. We'll see that in this chapter. This chapter divides up very neatly into two parts, waiting on God to make his plan clear in the opening few verses, and then listening to God when he makes his plan clear. Now, this takes up the last 17 verses, but those verses begin with a brief general introduction to how God will deal with evil and then specifically, how God will judge evil. There's five woes in the last 17 verses. Five times, woe is going to be pronounced on the evildoer. God will judge evil and evildoers will reap what they have sown. God will judge evildoers and they will be put to shame. Evildoers will pass away. Evildoers will be disgraced and evildoers will be exposed in their irrational idolatry. This is how God responds to the prophet. When he assures him, he will judge evil. Now, primarily in this chapter, 
God's judgment of evil focuses on the Babylonians. The prophet was beside himself. How can you use a more wicked people to judge the Jewish people, your own people whom you love? Now God is going to tell him, I will judge the Babylonians as well. But the things that he talks about there, while immediately it's talking about the Babylonians, there are principles there that apply to all forms of evil. Even the evil that exists in our day. So let's get right into this now, the first part, and see how Habakkuk waits on God to make his plan clear. It's always right to expectantly wait upon God for answers. When we pray to him, when we ask him questions, it's right and proper to expect a response from God. We'll see where that response comes from when we get to verse 3. But he says, Habakkuk, after responding to God and telling, basically charging God with injustice, that God doesn't care about evil. That's how chapter 1 ends. He then says, I will stand at my guard post. In other words, I'm going to do the job that the Lord's not doing. He should be guarding Israel. He called him the protector in chapter 1. But I'll stand at the guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. But instead of looking out for evil, he says, I will watch to see what he, the Lord God, will say to me. Now, it's right to expect answers, but it's wrong to wait upon God for answers when our motives are wrong. He's looking out for God's answer. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. He's already planning to reply to God, just like he did after the first time God spoke. When God speaks the second time, he's planning to reply to God and once again challenge God on God's plan to judge evil. He doesn't want to accept the Lord's answer, how I should reply. If I like what the Lord says to me this time, I didn't like him saying to me, oh, here's how I'm going to judge evil with the Babylonians. I didn't like that. That's got to be wrong. If I like what the Lord says to me this time, okay, all's good. But if I don't like it, how I should reply to my complaint. I've got more to tell the Lord. This is is the way he's coming across as you read the text. He doesn't want to just listen. He is anxious to reply. He wants to have the last word on the matter. And you know something? In this book, he will have the last word. In chapter 3, he will reply to the Lord. But after he hears this answer in chapter 2, he's a changed man. And his prayer in chapter 3 recounts from previous history recorded in Scripture, the power and glory and justice and righteousness of the Lord. Once God has spoken, waiting is over. The Lord answered me. Write down this vision. The Lord is now speaking here. 
Habakkuk was waiting, and after he hears this, he wants to reply, which he'll do in chapter 3, but the Lord now answers him. Write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. Once the Lord has spoken, it's over. You have everything you need to know God's plan and to know how God is going to deal with things in his creation. You have everything you need to know about who God is, what his character is like, what he's going to do. Maybe not all the specific details, but you know the general flow of God's plan and where it's heading. God has given us his word, the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures, just as he did here with this one book of the 66 books of the Bible. This was his answer. All you have to do is read it. The same thing holds true of all 66 books of the Bible. That is God's answer to you and I regarding how he will deal with evil and other questions you might have about your life. What is the purpose of your life? What gives true, lasting meaning and joy to your life? How should you live in order to please the Lord? What is it you must believe in order to spend eternity with God and Christ in heaven? God has spoken on all of this and more, and it's recorded in Scripture. Just like with Habakkuk, the same is true of you and I. God has spoken. He has caused it to be inscribed, written in Scripture. All we have to do is read it to know. And the reading of it and the belief of it will give us the faith we need in uncertain times. God's word will always come to pass. Here's a promise from God. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. God has planned everything in its place as time goes on. It is true. There are no lies. There are no mistakes in what God has caused to be inscribed in Scripture. From our perspective, it might be delayed. We would like certain things to happen faster. Which of us would not want the Lord Jesus Christ to return before this church gathering is over? We all look forward to that. My time frame is yesterday. But I wonder, if God did things on my time frame, my scale, how many might be lost who would have been saved? God does things in His time. He knows the best time. Though it delays from our perspective, just wait for it. Never give up on the promises of God. It will certainly 
come. It will surely come. It will absolutely, positively come, he says. And it will not be late. Though it delays, it's not late. God never gets held up in traffic. Everything will happen at the exact moment that God from eternity past ordained it will happen because God and God alone is in control. Let's get into the second part as the prophet listens to how God is going to deal with his complaint about the greater evil of the Babylonians. And let's see the principles in these verses that apply to the evil that we see in the world, the evil that we experience in our life, and even at times the evil that's in here, in our own hearts. God acknowledges the presence of evil in the world. In chapter 1, the, the prophet says, you're forcing me to look at all this evil. But then he says, dear God, you're, you're too holy to look upon evil. Maybe you're missing it, God, because you can't look at it. But you're forcing me to see it. Trust me, there's evil in the world and the Babylonians are the worst. Here, despite the prophet's contention that God is too holy to see that there's evil, God acknowledges the presence of evil in the world. And he says primarily concerning the Babylonian king and general Nebuchadnezzar, but also all the Babylonians and by extension to any evil. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. He is without righteousness. He is without honesty. He is without holiness. God does acknowledge the presence of evil in the world. It didn't catch him by surprise. God then gives the proper response to evil for everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation. The righteous one will live by faith. The righteous one will live in trust in God and Christ. That's the proper response. Not fretting and worrying about evil, not carrying on about evil, not being consumed by the downward trend into evil in this country and in this world, the righteous one will live by faith. Faith that God is in control. Faith that what he said does not delay. It will come to pass. That is the response. Brothers and sisters, whenever... Whenever you're overwhelmed by evil, the answer is always faith, trust in God and Christ. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says this, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ? By grace through faith. Faith is not just something to be exercised at the beginning of your Christian life. It's to be exercised throughout your Christian life. So walk, a word which brings a, a mental image of walking down a path of righteousness, 
living and conducting your life in accordance with God's commands and God's instructions in Scripture. The righteous one will live by faith. That is always the proper response. Trust God. He is in control. When you think he is not, he is. The righteous one will live by trust in God. God's word gives insight into evil. He says in verse 5, the Lord continues, and he uses wine as an example, a common substance that had good purposes but could be abused. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, the grave, and like death, he is never satisfied. This is the nature of evil. Whatever that evil is, and here wine is one example of it, it betrays. It betrays. Many years ago, over 35 years ago, uh, I met a Christian man. He had been a heroin addict and an alcoholic. The gospel was shared to him by a friend of mine, and uh, he and uh, his girlfriend uh, both received Christ. They would get married. Uh, this man walked with the Lord so solid for 25 years. He was a, became a deacon in our church. He led our midweek prayer gathering. But through a combination of, of things... Uh, uh, his wife maxing out seven credit cards. He, he was a self-employed tradesman. His business not doing well. And then uh, some very, very poor conduct by some in the church, including an elder and some deacons, as well as other men, drinking in front of him, having a beer or a glass of wine with a meal. He fell back into wine. First, he told him it was okay, and they should have known better. And then he would join them with just a half a glass of wine. After time, he'd buy a bottle on the way home from work, and he'd have a glass. Eventually, it would grow to a whole bottle. I would meet with him once a week after I found out about all this to help him. I would take him to meetings take him out to dinner and take him to meetings. And I, and I asked him, why? Why? And he explained a lot of things to me, but one thing that I distinctly remember him saying, he said, the bottle tells me it's my friend, but it's not. It's not. It's the enemy of his soul. Praise the Lord, he ended up repenting, his marriage got back together, and he's doing well. But evil in all its forms is not our friend. Whatever it is, whether it be a bottle of wine, no matter what it is, it is not our friend. Evil is never satisfied to stay in one place in our life. Sin 
is never satisfied to stay in one area of our life. When it comes to sin, our life is not compartmentalized. If we allow sin in one area, in our work environment, or in our home environment, or when we're alone, that sin will grow and infect every area of our life. It is not satisfied. Paul puts it this way in writing to the Corinthians. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And any of you who have baked understand what that is, what that means. That leaven is mixed and goes throughout that entire lump of dough as it rises. Sin never will stay in one place. Allow it in your private life, it'll creep into your marriage. It'll creep into your family. It will grow into your work. It betrays. It is not our friend. Don't be drawn in by the attraction of evil. Like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. Don't be attracted by evil. Sure, some forms of evil, some forms of sin might be attractive in one way or another to one fleshly appetite or to our eye, appeal to our eyes or our pride. Don't be drawn in. Any of you who have fished understand what this is talking about. You've either used live bait to attract a fish and hide a hook, or you've used lures, shiny things, things that move and look like a fish that's struggling in the water. You do it to attract something you want to catch. That's the way sin and evil is. The temptation that, that appeals to us, it's just a juicy worm. And who here wants to bite into a nice, juicy night crawler? Not me. I mean, that's an ugly picture. That's really what sin is. That's what evil is. Don't be drawn in by the attraction of it. God now is going to pronounce five woes upon the evildoer. Woe number one, God will judge evil and evildoers will reap what they have sown. You might be familiar with a couple of verses from Galatians chapter 6. Paul writes this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You can't make a fool of God. You can't trick God. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he shall also reap. You plant this, you, 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 you plant wheat, what do you think is going to come up in the field? Not corn, you planted wheat. You reap what you sow. Whatever a man sows, this he shall also reap. The one who sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, decay, rottenness. The one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is God's government. Whatever we sow, unbeliever and believer, you and I will reap what we have sown. 
But Paul, what about God's grace? Doesn't God's grace forgive us when we trust in Christ and his work of salvation on the cross? Oh yes, you're absolutely right. That's God's grace. But there's two sides to the coin. Grace is one side. His government is the other side. Grace saves us from a lost eternity separated from God and Christ. But his government, we reap what we sow. Believer and unbeliever. This is God's government. This is how it works. So that we do not engage in evil. We will reap what we have sown, either corruption or eternal life, which is not just length of life, but quality of life. Even the dead, the unsaved dead, will live forever, separated from God and Christ. There's something more to eternal life than just length of life. Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. God's grace was revealed at the cross. And all our sins can be forgiven if we trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. But as government, we can still reap what we have sown. Those oppressed by evil want justice. God knows this. He hears their cry. He says in verse 6, won't all of these take up a taunt against him, against the evildoer, with mockery and riddles about whom they will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Anyone who's oppressed by evil cries out for justice. Though the courts of man may not hear, may not grant justice, just as they did not in the days of Habakkuk, God will eventually grant justice. All of us want justice when we're wronged. We may not get it in this life, but God will ensure that justice will be done. Those who do evil will one day reap what they have sown. The Lord says, won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up then you will become spoiled for them. You plundered them, now you're going to be plundered. They were your spoil, now you're going to become their spoil. You will reap what you have sown. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. God says this is most certainly going to happen. And it did happen to the Babylonians. History records it. Not just biblical history, but secular history. The Medo-Persian Empire rose up and destroyed the Babylonian Empire. The same is true in our day. Paul said it in Galatians 6. The one who sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. Brothers and sisters, let's... Be very careful about what we sow. Let us only sow the things of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's not sow evil. 
Woe number two, God will judge evil and evildoers will be put to shame. One's evil will one day bring shame. That which someone may glory in now, take delight in now in some form of evil, one day that will be shame to them. We may not care about it now, but I tell you, brothers and sisters, one day we will care, and we will care deeply when we stand before him. We will care in that day. The Lord says, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house, to place his nest on high, to escape from the reach of disaster. Wealth, materialism. This is the idol, the God of so many. Not just the unsaved, but even some believers. To escape the reach of disaster. We want a big bank account. We want to have all that we need to escape disaster in case God lets us down. We can rely on our bank account. If you don't think that the desire to be wealthy is, is one of the most consuming passions, at least in this country, all you have to do is look at all the state lotteries and Powerball. Why do they even exist? If no one cared about anything other than working hard and earning a living with their hands or whatever they do, you wouldn't have these state lotteries. You wouldn't have legalized gambling. It's just to gather wealth to avoid disaster. But instead of planning for the deliverance of their house, he says in verse 10, you have actually planned shame for your house. And in fact, in accumulating wealth for yourself, even taking it wrongly from others, you're really sinning against your own self. Because one day, shame is going to happen. In doing what we think we might need to do to protect ourselves, no matter what the cost, no matter whether it's unrighteous or not, we're not planning to avoid disaster. God says what you're really planning for is you're planning shame for your house. He mentions sinning against your own self. People in this condition, they don't care about sinning against God. They don't care about sinning against others. The only thing that's important to themselves is themselves. And so he talks about sinning against your own self as a wake-up call that these unrighteous, evil actions, you are doing harm to yourself. Evil will one day be recognized as evil by all. He had just said, you're building a house up high like a nest to escape disaster. But the stones of that house will cry out, uh, will cry out from the wall and the rafters, the wood supporting the roof will answer them from the woodwork. He, he, he's exaggerating here. Obviously, stones are not going to speak and wood is not going to speak. And he'll even talk about that at the end when he talks about idols. 
but evil will be recognized by all one day, and they will cry out against the evildoer. Woe number three, God will judge evil, and evildoers will pass away. They will not last. Their time is only temporary. Evil focuses on the wrong thing and will not last forever. Woe to him who builds a city, not just a house, a nest up high to escape disaster, like in the previous verses, but who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. He's going to go on in the next verses. It will not last forever. It's temporary. The evildoer, the one who engages in sin, focuses on the wrong thing. They're focused on time. They're focused on the here and now. They're not focused on eternity. Time, your entire life, will just be a drop in the ocean of eternity. Evil always focuses on the wrong thing. It never focuses on the glory of God. It does not focus on eternity. It only focuses on what's in front of me right now. Whenever you see yourself focused only on now, and God is not in your thoughts as you're making a decision about what to do about this that's in front of me, know that that is sin, that is evil. You can only make wise, Christ-honoring choices if you have God in your thoughts and you're focused on eternity. It's not just how this will affect my life. It's how will it affect my eternity. Paul says, see to it that no one robs you of your full reward. You want to know who the main thief is of robbing you of your full reward? Just look in the mirror. It's you and I. God is sovereign even over those who ignore him. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that the people's label labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? These other nations, these other countries, they rejected the God of the Jews. They wanted nothing to do with him, yet he was even sovereign over them. He says they're exhausting themselves for nothing. Their plans would not last. Their greatest desires would not come to pass. God's glory revealed will one day do away with all evil. The Lord says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as waters cover the sea. One day, the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord, when Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom, it will do away with all evil. No one will be needed to be taught, know the Lord. For all will know me, the Lord says, from the least to the greatest. Woe number four, God will judge evil and evildoers will be disgraced. Evil is never to your personal benefit. Sin is never to your personal benefit. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink. He goes back to the image of alcohol and drink again and drunkenness. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. Anyone who entices you to evil, no matter how much they say they are your friend, 
They do not have your best interests in mind. Only God has your best interests in mind. Only the one who exhorts you to walk in the path of righteousness has your best interests in mind. Anyone who tries to entice you into sin, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. That's not just for children. Surely it applies to children, but it applies to adults as well. You and I can be corrupted by bad company. They entice us to evil, here to drink and get drunk, in order to look at our nakedness. Not literally, but the evil that's within us to cause us to turn our backs on God. Evil will never end well for you. Sin will never end well for you. And it speaks volumes about who each of us is. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. That alcohol that they, they were drinking in the previous verse, just one example. It could be any number of things you could put there. Instead of glorying in it, oh, what a great time. Instead of being filled with that glory, that excitement, that happiness, there'll come a point when you will be filled with disgrace. You will also drink and expose your uncircumcision. Remember the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? The sign by which you were united with God by faith was circumcision. Here, uncircumcision indicates this person has no relationship with God. Engaging in evil again and again and again. Making evil, making sin your goal. Things that displease God. Things that Christ has asked us not to engage in. We need to ask ourselves, does this expose my spiritual uncircumcision? Does it expose the fact that I may not be saved at all? Oh, but Paul, I said a prayer on a tract. So did I. But I can't find any verse of Scripture that says if you say this prayer, you're saved. I mean, I can look in the book of Second Opinions. I might find it there, but I'm not going to find it in the 66 books of the Bible. Oh, but Paul, I walked the aisle. I came forward and received Christ. Show me a verse that says you have to walk the aisle. A lot of people walk the aisle and then turn their back on Christ the rest of their life. They are exposing their spiritual uncircumcision. Engaging in evil, living sinfully as the practice of your life, if that's what characterizes you, I would tell you to examine yourself, just as Paul did to the Corinthians. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Maybe Christ isn't in you at all if your life is lived in sinful ways. 
evil never will end well for you, and it speaks volumes about you and I if we engage in evil as a way of life. The folly of rejoicing in evil will one day be recognized to your own shame. There, instead of the cup of wine that the evildoer passes you, that you willingly partake in, instead of that cup, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. Eventually, the Lord will pass his cup upon every evildoer, and every evildoer will drink of the cup of the wrath and judgment of God. And an utter, utter disgrace will cover that sin, that evil, that evildoers gloried in. The eventual disgrace of the evildoer will one day terrify even the evildoer. They will change their mind about all their evil, and it will terrify them. What they rejoiced in, what they gloried in, they will be afraid of. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The fact that you destroyed others, the destruction of animals even will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who dwell in them. The Lord says, one day, every evildoer will be terrified of their own evil. They will realize one day that everything they did was wrong and was evil. The fifth woe, God will judge evil and evildoers will be exposed in their irrational idolatry. The creation of idols. There it was literal idols made out of stone or wood and usually overlaid with gold or a precious metal. The creation of idols of the heart makes no sense at all. It has been said that our heart is an idol factory. We manufacture idols sometimes all day long and day after day. Instead of God and Christ being the object of our worship, we manufacture idols, gods, to worship. Whether it be money, whether it be power or prestige, We create idols of the heart, and it makes no sense at all. In verse 18, what use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. It has no use. There is no use. It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. Just like my friend told me, the bottle is not your friend. The idol is not your friend. The desire for riches is not your friend. The desire for pleasure is not your friend. The desire for anything that God in Christ does not approve of is not our friend. It makes no sense at all. It teaches us lies that our life can be fulfilled by possessing that idol. For the one who crafts its shape, trusts in it. These idols had a shape. Look, the idols of the heart, they're like putting a square peg in a round hole. 
if the, if the square peg is small enough, it'll fit in the hole. And it'll touch the sides of the hole at four points, at the four corners of the square peg. But it won't touch anywhere else. Over 99% of that circle will not be in contact with the square peg. Every heart, the heart of everyone here this morning, has a Christ-shaped space, a Christ-shaped shape in their heart, in their soul. Only Christ can fully fill that space. Only He has the shape. We can't fill it with money. We can't fill it with pleasure. We can't fill it with anything else. Creating idols of the heart makes no sense at all. They will never ultimately satisfy. It's always like he had said earlier, it want, like the grave wants more, more, more. It never has enough. The worship of the idols of the heart makes no sense at all. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Does that make any sense? Could you picture yourself saying to an idol, come alive, listen, wake up? Remember Elijah when he did battle with the prophets of Baal? He taunts them. He says, oh, cry out louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe Baal has fallen asleep. Oh, cry out to him more. Maybe he's using the toilet. This is how he mocks them. This is idols. The idols of the heart can no more hear our cries than Baal could hear the cries of his priests. The idols of our heart can no more satisfy the deepest longings of your soul and mine than Baal could. They, they don't have ears to hear our cries. They don't have eyes to watch out for us. They don't have a mouth to teach. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver. Oh, it might be a lot of money. It may be plated with gold and silver, yet it has no breath in it at all. You know, I know you've all heard this before. The founding pastor of this church would like to use this as an illustration. A lot of preachers use it as an illustration, but it works really good here. Perhaps he was the richest man alive at the time, but when John D. Rockefeller died, he left a fortune that no one really knew how much it was except the executor of his estate. A journalist, hoping to get a scoop, approached the executor and said to him, is there any way you could tell me how much Mr. Rockefeller left behind? And much to the journalist's surprise, the executor says, why, yes, of course, I'll be happy to tell you. The journalist, all ready to write down the number so he doesn't make any mistake, the executor says he left all of it. And the same's going to be true of you and I. The idols of the heart will have no value whatsoever. They will profit us not at all after death. Lastly, 
the last verse of this chapter begins just the way the first verse began. In the first verse, Habakkuk was going to stand as a watchman, silent, watching, waiting, listening for God. He was silent. He wasn't going to speak. I want to see what he's going to say to me so I can answer him. Now at the end, the Lord says that he is in his holy temple. Let everyone, not just Habakkuk, everyone be silent in his presence. Instead of planning to speak and disagreeing with God and correcting God, be silent. God is present. He does see the evil in the world. And unlike idols, God will speak. He has already spoken in his word. And that's how he's going to deal with evil, exactly as it has been written in his word. He will send his son back to establish his kingdom and do away with evil. God will one day create a new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the power of your word. And oh Lord, we confess this was heavy for us to hear because we are convicted by it because we acknowledge to you, as you know full well, we are not perfect people. We've trusted in you for salvation and you alone, and we thank you for that. But dear God, in, in moments when we're on our knees before you, we recognize that we still fail you, and it grieves us. We do not want our life to be characterized by evil. We do not want to be one who will reap corruption. Oh, dear God, we acknowledge our sin. It is ever before you, against you, and you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak. You are right when you judge us. We have no words. We are silent before you. Heal our hearts and our souls, dear God. Hold us close to you, that our lives will be pleasing to you. We ask all this for your glory and your namesake. Amen.